Take a network break. Lick the melted frosting off your virtual donut and join us for a summertime frolic through this week's IT news. We've got security updates and inflation conversation and space networking. Quick break to tell you about our sponsor, iTential. They are a network and cloud automation company. Their software makes it easy for network teams to get insights into your entire infrastructure, immediately detect non-compliant assets for rapid remediation, and manage and deploy changes across both CLI and API infrastructure. You can find out more at itential.com slash packetpushers. And stay tuned after the news. We're going to have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with AppNeta. As organizations figure out how to make distributed work a more permanent feature, IT has to be prepared to support remote and on-prem workers for the foreseeable future. And we talked to AppNeta about instrumenting application performance management to support that hybrid work environment. Last but not least, we'd appreciate it if you could take a few minutes to fill out our 2021 audience survey. It helps us set priorities, understand what listeners and readers are consuming, and it gives us some aggregate data that helps us lure sponsors into our grasp. Uh, you can find that survey link at packetpushers.net slash survey, and thanks in advance. All right, let's jump to the news. Uh, last week, security researchers at Microsoft discovered an active exploit against the SolarWinds ServeView file transfer products. The exploit's targeting a zero-day vulnerability in the way the ServeView software implements the secure shell protocol. A successful exploit lets attackers remotely execute code, install and run malicious payloads, and view and change data. There is a patch available. So uh, the couple, the trend here, of course, is that SolarWinds has been owned multiple times now in the last two years. Obviously, uh, there was the big hack, and then several of its products have been compromised afterwards. And this is a file transfer product. So this is where you set up a server that's supposed to be publicly facing the internet. You trust it to be secure. And of course, last uh, year, we saw the big Excellion hack. So Excellion was a company which produced these special file transfer appliances. This is in the same code. And for them to have a vulnerability in like the most obvious part of the code, the secure shell, right? The SSH and let attackers remotely execute code is a rather egregious uh, failure on Sol by SolarWinds, I think. And it would question whether SolarWinds is conducting any sort of reasonable testing, any sort of reasonable training of its uh, developers and or conducting any sort of review of its product from the point of view of say security is important, even when selling a product, which is obviously exposed to the internet and it should reasonably expect to be secure. This really does feel poor quality here. It does. I mean, on one hand, you sort of feel bad for, for SolarWinds for being hit again. But on the other hand, when you have a product that is by design internet facing, you got to make mm -hmm. sure it's secure. That's just it's part like of the deal. It's like making an unsafe web server, right? Right. Just You think, I'll just make a web server and we'll wait for the bugs to come in, you know, like whatever. Just We'll get an intern to do that. Who cares? That's not what this, pro you know, that's that's not how it works. It really is. And the, the flip side here is that SolarWinds didn't discover this. Microsoft did. Right. Uh, and so they're not even finding out themselves. Does SolarWinds have a bug bounty program? Does it work with people in the public space to find vulnerabilities? Does it actually do any testing on its products? I really think there are strong questions here to be asked about whether SolarWinds is, you know, it's a big company and it has a lot of customers, but I have real questions about whether SolarWinds is actually developing products seriously, like with intent, you know, or are they just doing them to make money at the cheapest possible price and the customers can suffer so what too bad? I, I, I don't know. Bueno. I mean, if I were SolarWinds, I'd, you know, first the Microsoft research says uh, it's likely, uh, they've determined it's likely uh, a Chinese uh, group attacking. So there may be a nation state uh, element attached to this. Uh, and so SolarWinds could always say, there's nothing we can do against the resources of a nation state. But if I was a SolarWinds customer, I would be wanting to have very serious conversations with them about 
their software security, what they're doing with all of their existing products to make sure that things like this don't happen. I think, well, I think customers should be getting to the point where they're saying, you know, SolarWinds products are proven unsafe or proven insecure consistently and treating them appropriately. And that means extra controls. You would have to spend money putting firewalls in front of them or IPS systems in front of them uh, to make sure that they're, you know, and that costs money. And to me, why should customers pay for that? They have a reasonable expectation that these products should be safe and productive and useful. And clearly, you know, the customer's response, taking responsibility. I don't think customers should have to take responsibility here. If you buy a faulty car, you can take it back and get your money back. If I was a SolarWinds customer, I'd be asking for my money back. Yeah, my big takeaway is that every time uh, a US IT company gets hit as a way to exploit like US government customers or commercial interests, the pressure is going to ramp up on lawmakers to quote unquote, do something. And that Mm -hmm. means new laws and regulations on software security, or perhaps even liability for companies that sell IT software. I'm sure those companies don't want that. Um, And the government, when it gets into regulations, doesn't always necessarily have the best uh, approach. But uh, if this keeps up, that's going to be you're going to call it down on yourself because the that's actually not true. You don't in think the so? event that the governments would actually put legislation in place, it actually gives incumbents actually locks the incumbents into position because they would have the resources and sufficient incentive to comply with the government requirements. So, you know, if you were told that you had to do this, this and this, then SolarWinds would, you know, then appropriate security suppliers would say, well, that's what we have to do. And then all of a sudden that becomes the minimum, right? Yes. yes. So um, now to some extent that is lifting the floor instead of lifting the ceiling. Right. So in security, what we actually want is to lift the ceiling, but what what's much more effective is lifting the floor. So, so far, we're just seeing gross incompetence from a wide range of suppliers. We talked about Kaseya last week. It's SolarWinds this week. You could pick anybody, you know, go through any of the security stories from any week. And if we could just get our vendors to actually take security seriously, train developers, put security uh, review into the code development process, conduct red team on your products before they escape into into production uh, and lift the floor so that the things are, and that's hopefully what the government regulation would do, but that would also prevent new products from emerging in the market. Right. The, the, it becomes a they burden. They can meet the regulations. Yes. They can publish right. and say, we have protested and validated that our product meets the regulations. There's probably some sort of authority, but then what it does is brings the ceiling down to the floor. Yeah, I take your point. Uh, and my larger point was that government regulations aren't always necessarily implemented well or correctly, uh, but they will come uh, if this keeps up. And I don't think, Mm. but I take your point. Yes, we need to raise the floor. The bar should be (laughs) basic, secure software. The flip side of it is when government regulation raises the floor, it also lowers the ceiling generally. Mm. Companies, the good companies, the companies who are doing more than enough actually say, well, we don't have to do any of this anymore. We'll abandon it. And yeah, so there is a challenge there, but all right, links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, there's other security news. SonicWall says it's been alerted of an active ransomware attack targeting a vulnerability in unpatched and end-of-life firmware in its secure mobile access 100 and secure remote access products. Uh, SonicWall is recommending that customers with affected products should either install the patch or disconnect the devices from their networks. This is a string of SonicWall vulnerabilities, and this is, again, yet another SonicWall product. And uh, at this point, I'm pretty sure I don't see why anyone should own SonicWall equipment. <laughs> to be fair, I, I think to be fair though, if it's end of life equipment, uh, that's in some ways on the customer as well. If you've decided you're going to run the mm-hmm. risk of not having updated security and updated software, 
that's a risk you are essentially walking into because you know about it. So I kind of see SonicWall's perspective as well. Yes, but this is not the first. This is SonicWall has a vulnerability about once a month mm -hmm. in a product, in a firewall, in a VPN. At this point, I don't think you should be owning SonicWall products at all. It's very hard to recommend them um, in, in any purpose or for any situation because it just seems like, again, like other companies, they are systemically weak in terms of developing safe and secure software. Right. Uh, customers who can't or aren't in the mood to upgrade the license for the newest firmware can get a complimentary virtual instance that will be active until October 31st, 2021, uh, if you need a little bit of time to figure out what to do next. Okay. Good luck with that. Just turn it off. Get something else. <laughs> All right. Uh, one more security story. NVIDIA and Palo Alto Networks have announced a partnership around NVIDIA's Bluefield 2 data processing unit or DPU uh, and virtual instances of Palo Alto's firewall software running on x86 servers. At present, the partnership is pretty basic. If the firewall software running on the CPU decides that the first packet of a flow doesn't need to go through full payload inspection, like for example, a video call, it can punt the rest of that flow to the DPU and offload uh, that processing to the DPU to essentially move the, uh, move the flow through the system. Now, we had a period of time here on the on the network break and then on other shows where we talked about DPUs extensively. And the idea is, is that there's a piece of hardware in a standard server that specializes in data processing or doing the networking components. And part of that is SSL offload, crypto of various forms, and packet inspection, packet matching, packet filtering, right? And this is an instance of that. I'm sort of surprised it's taken this long for it to come out. NVIDIA, of course, uh, acquired Mellanox, which gives it the Bluefield 2, which is the older generation of the DPU. The next generation is Bluefield 3, which is announced but won't ship this year, I don't think. Um, and the concept here is that Palo Alto's software can run in a virtual, in, as a virtual instance, so as software in a VM, I believe. Yes. And it'll be able to reach down into the DPU APIs and then use the DPU to accelerate. That is not new. That is exactly how Palo Alto's firewalls work. And if any firewall company basically has a standard common use motherboard, typically Intel x86 of some form, and then they have an accelerator on board and it's usually roughly equivalent to a DPU. Uh, they used to have SSL termination or various crypto chips. In more recent years, it's been one of these, these uh, smart NICs, and now we're moving to DPUs. And I think it's going to be standard practice for everybody at the end of the day to basically move away from having hardware firewalls to having software firewalls using DPUs. So first to market, so they get the press release, not too sure about the rest of it. Yeah, uh, what struck me about it, I got a briefing is that uh, this uh, offload is not doing anything around encryption or deep packet inspection, any of the core firewall functions that you might want to offload to save those CPU uh, cores. Mm. It's just doing essential networking offload. Um, NVIDIA is saying you can still get a 5x performance boost by doing that networking offload and return up to 12 cores to the CPU, but I was a little sort of underwhelmed by this initial release. Feels rushed. Feels like that's coming and... Uh, NVIDIA wants, NVIDIA generally seems to want to announce early and often. Mm -hmm. And, and it, if you follow their RSS feed, I just get hammered with press release after press release after press release. And most of them are trivial and not of significance. And it's kind of, a, kind of annoying in its way. And this is, feels <laughs> like that, you know, they've got, instead of waiting 
until they could complete the use of the functionality in the DPU and waiting for Palo Alto to move to doing the whole thing. They've rushed a press release out for a minor feature. I feel that that's a problem. Uh, I agree. It's a minor feature. My assumption is they, one, want to sort of help uh, tweak the market and get some other partners uh, interested and involved in this, bring other security vendors Mm -hmm. into their fold. Uh, So when you rush something out like this and Palo Alto gets a little glory, then all the others go like, wait, we want some of that too. Um, (laughs) I see that. The question is, in my mind, is can firewall companies be profitable without hardware sales? So we know that companies like Checkpoint and Palo and Fortinet and Cisco especially make a lot of their money from hardware sales and it's very cash flow positive. They sell the hardware up front. They get substantial margins on the hardware, get substantial service revenue margins, a lot of service revenue margins on on hardware maintenance. If they adopt DPUs in commodity servers, does do firewall companies or do security companies like these go through a transformation as they abandon, you know, the old revenue streams. Now that said, we are several years into the software defined revolution and remaining performance obligations is a big deal. That's basically your future subscriptions and licenses and so forth. And companies are well into the software transition. So I'm not as concerned about it as I might've been three or four years ago. You know, the companies are out there selling software, selling SaaS services, selling cloud inspection services, and maybe, selling hardware is becoming not what they want to be doing anymore because there is substantial costs associated with hardware sales. And if hardware, we talked a lot about supply chain weaknesses, right? Maybe this is a way of saying not our supply chain, not our problem. It's possible. I think the way we've seen uh, big companies transition to a more service uh, model um, a, as opposed to uh, a direct upfront cost, I think they're figuring out ways to continue to charge the same amount, essentially, whether it's hardware or software. I don't anticipate significant uh, hits to their bottom line by transitioning away from hardware appliances. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It's just going to be, a, there's a transformation there, you know, and also for customers to move away from this firewall hardware box Traffic goes through, blah, blah, blah. Right. Interesting times. Right, a quick break to tell you about Attential. Today's network span physical, virtual, and multi-cloud infrastructure, and that complexity can make it hard to automate reliably. Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks much more manageable. With Itential, you get insights into your entire infrastructure. You can immediately detect non-compliant assets and remediate them rapidly and manage and deploy changes across CLI and API infrastructure. The Itential platform gives you the trust and confidence you need for automation. For example, their configuration manager integrates configuration validation right into the automation process so you get operational consistency across physical and cloud networks. They also have a low-code automation studio to give you an easy on-ramp to network automation with drag and drop capabilities and an open library of pre-built automation workflows that integrate with any IT system. Itential delivers end-to-end automation across all your networks. Know your network, automate your networks. You can find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's itential.com slash packet pushers. Greg, you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, inflation and technology. Yeah, we had a bit of a, it's a bit of a slight news week this week. There's not a whole lot of technology news. And I mentioned last week that a lot of it is because we're seeing a lot of announcements around features, but not new products or new trends, which is fine as far as it goes, but there you go. Um, But one of the things that I noted this week is that there's a lot of discussion in the mainstream media about economic inflation. And I've been puzzling over what is the meaning of economic inflation that is in the wider economy and what does it mean to the technology, especially to IT professionals who would listen to the network break like you. 
And obviously, I'm not an economist and predicting trends is difficult, but there is some extrapolation that you can make. And from my case, I'm doing it from experience, right? So there's a persistent thread around lots of mainstream media about the rise of inflation as we come out of COVID, obviously. And we're also seeing some supply chain tensions, which is driving prices up. Demand is increasing. So there are people increasing prices. Mm -hmm. Now, this has a direct impact on your technology projects, and that's the application of it. Inflation means over time that the prices on products and services will rise over time. That is, if I buy something today, then in six months' time, it might be 5% more expensive, 10% more expensive. If I have services charged at $400 an hour, it will be $450 an hour in six months' time. And on top of production scarcity, which is also driving up product prices as manufacturers raise their prices to take advantage of a profit-making opportunity and people in the food chain are coming up, you know, in the supply chain are also taking extra profits because they can. I think this leads to a couple of things that you can do on the ground. So here's some things that I just thought of off the top of my head. The first one is you're, if you're in negotiations with salespeople, they can create a false decision scenario by saying, well, if you don't order now, prices will increase in the next three months or next week, or there's a price. They're trying to make a false concept of scarcity. So be aware of that. And if you, you, you would have seen that before, Drew. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a fairly common sales tactic to sort of you know, try and get you to buy by saying it'll be more expensive next week, so you better hurry up and buy now. Now, that is absolutely, there's some validity to it, but don't, let, don't be forced um, into that sort of thing. Don't be duped by that sort of trick selling activity. And if somebody does that to you, find out if it's actually genuine or whether they're just lying to you to make something up to try and get you to put a PO in this quarter. Uh, the more more troublesome problem comes in when project execution can be disrupted if price inflation affects your project. So if you're buying, if you commit to a project on a budgetary pricing now and in six months time, three months time, the prices increase, um, obviously your project budget can be blown out of the water. And Combine that with delivery lead times. If you're a vendor and you've committed to a price, and let's say it takes nine months to deliver the product, well, if there is market inflation, they may come back to you and say, we can't sell it to you at this price anymore. We're now going to charge you more and go back into renegotiating. And then your project budgets and your project implementations can be further impacted. So I guess the idea then would be to uh, maybe create some headroom in that budget or in your mm. budget forecast to say we may need to have a little extra uh, space in here given the inflationary risk. Yeah. The last 10 years has been a low inflation environment yep. where prices generally haven't increased. We've seen new technologies come out which have increased the pricing. So subscription licensing, for example, has dramatically increased the total cost. If you calculate the ROI over time, the ROI is much less these days because of the, but those are uh, costs embedded in a new generation of technology. In this case, you're seeing existing technologies just get more expensive. So when you're in your projects, probably work in a bit of a buffer for price rises and stick it on the risk register for a project. Say to people, you know, it's worth noting that, and and this is about making you look good, right? Right. So you're in a project, (laughs) you should be saying, we don't understand what the risk is for price rises, but you know we should be factoring in the fact that vendors are raising prices. We are in an inflationary economic cycle. We do need to leave a bit of a bit of slap in there. Don't try and spend every single dollar in the budget when services and products, not just products, but services also with rise. We're seeing a lot of pressure on technology salaries. People are rightly expecting to get paid more, and you should expect to get paid more. I'm all for you, by the way. <laughs> I'm on your side, so. 
when everybody gets paid more, the project budget gets blown out of the water. So be aware of that. Yeah, you you also may want to put that in an email that this forecasting about uh, prices possibly going up. So adjust the budget accordingly so that six months from now you can go back to that email and be like, I did mention this, folks. <laughs> yeah, you look prescient. That's when right. You uh, predict <laughs> that thing and you look good getting uh, at a personal level. Um, now, inflation is not bad. It's not a bad thing. Too much inflation is definitely bad. Too little inflation is also bad. And that's what we've had for far too long now. Uh, most economists agree that the low inflationary economy of the last 10 to 15 years has been bad, especially for people in the lower economic sections and the middle and the uh, middle class. And that is largely because most people at a personal level, most of us have mortgages and loans. So car loans and mortgages. And in years gone by, as uh, as time goes by, your salary would increase. And so over time, your house price would increase slowly. Your salary would increase as inflation came along, but your mortgage payment would stay the same. And this inflation would then ease the burden of paying for these loans because your loans are fixed at the time that you bought it. And mm. so, for example, my parents had a 30-year mortgage and uh, their final payment at the 30-year stage was like $20 at a time, like, it, I think it was like $30 at a time that they were earning, you know, like 10,000 a month. Mm -hmm. It was like nothing. But when mm -hmm. they first paid it, it was nearly killing them. Right. But that was just 30 years of inflation made it possible for them to go on and live lives. You, you live poor for the start. And then as inflation increases your wage and salary over time, it becomes more easy to pay for those and you get a life, right? And that is the, that is the thing that, that does happen. So it'd be it, inflation is generally good for you as long as it's modest. So do get in on that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it does seem like we're starting to finally see some movement around wage increases generally in the labor market where wage growth uh, has been flat compared to productivity. So it, that also seems to be like, I don't know if this is just a blip, uh, but if it's an ongoing trend, that's that's good for workers. Yeah. So, you know, just there's two angles here. One is the professional angle, which is your projects. There's a project risk that inflation may hit you, especially over long running projects. Um, or even projects that are on long lead times, vendors will predict the prices now. Now, generally, companies like HPE and Cisco have pretty strong supply chains and they know exactly what they're trying to achieve, but we'll see what happens after that. That's right. And on the salary front, you're worth more. Go get it. You're worth more. Go and get it. And at a personal level, some inflation should actually see that your salary growth over time, uh, making it easy for you to have a good life outside of work. You know, pay down your debts, have some extra cash flow to, to have a good life. Yeah. All right. Uh, we haven't done a space networking segment for a while, but we are checking in uh, on the space internet ambitions of Jeff Bezos. The Verge is reporting that Amazon acquired a team of Facebook engineers who were developing space-based internet uh, for Facebook, but Facebook is now bowing out of that venture, allowing Bezos to step in and sweep up the team with Facebook's permission. It sounds like there was some cash exchanged as well. Yeah, well, there's been a lot in billionaire space networks this week, obviously. Uh, Richard Branson flew to space, arguably. Right. Uh, Jeff Bezos is going to fly to space, arguably. They're actually just flying over some arbitrary line. <laughs> I don't know if you followed the debate, but apparently uh, yes. most countries run on it, believe it's 70 kilometres, but some countries believe it's 100 kilometres up or something. Yeah. Right. It, it, what's the difference between a rocket and a very an airplane going very, very high is the question, I think. Yeah. Well, there is in, in terms of space, uh, space technology or space science, there's two places. There's a line at 100, which is where uh, once you're above 100 kilometers, then the gravity of Earth is so small that you're generally spaceborne. Yeah. But I think there's another one at 70 kilometers. And if I 
I'm not exactly sure that I'm right here because I may be recalling this long, but at 70 kilometers, you're at a place point where you can actually fly. Uh, you're above the atmosphere and you can get a rotational speed around the earth, which is consistent. You can just set a speed and go mm-hmm. orbit the earth. Mm-hmm. And there's some like scientific definition of the two. And some countries believe in one and some countries believe in the other in terms of the way that they define the rules. But in this case, uh, this article is basically highlighting that Amazon hopes to have over 3000 satellites in low earth orbit by 2029. So we're seeing a competitors emerge to SpaceX and yep. Amazon with Blue Origin as the rocket launching company. So Blue Origin is uh, Jeff Bezos' um, company. He has associated his name. It seems to be his uh, post Amazon plaything, if you like. That's right. Um, but uh, Blue <laughs> Some Origin, people play Blue golf, Line, some people build rockets. That's right, especially if you're a multi, multi, multi billionaire. Uh, so, but like SpaceX, Blue Origin will depend on satellite launches as a key revenue stream. But more importantly, it needs to have a space internet product to fund everything. So, one of the key revenue streams for SpaceX is they can't make just launching satellites cost justifiable. So, what they actually need to do is have some other business associated with it. And for SpaceX, launching its Starlink satellite is going to be a probably its little mainstay customer. So it's its own best customer. Right. And Blue Origin seems to be heading down the same path. Uh, Amazon, of course, will operate and sell the satellite network as, at this stage, can change over time. And we know from previous network breaks that they've already deployed a number of ground stations for satellite uplinks and they're renting them to other satellite companies today. And obviously their own network will use those ground stations. So they've been building out the infrastructure as part of that. They believe they will have 11 ground stations. Ground stations is currently a weakness in the Starlink network. Getting the signal down from the satellites and into the key pop points is not yet a solved problem. Mm -hmm. That's part of why it's in beta, but Keep in mind that it is 2022 and it looks like Amazon's satellite internet may not be fully operational until 2029 and maybe in beta around 2026. So the Starlink has a substantial competitive edge so far. Yeah, they're definitely getting first to market. I think uh, Amazon or is, is hoping to have half the number of its uh 3,200 satellites in orbit uh, by 2026. So maybe it can start services uh, before 2029, but 2029 is when it'll have all the satellites deployed according to plan so far. Yeah. And hiring Facebook satellite team gives them, you know, acqui hires. Yep. More bodies. Yeah. And, and Facebook has been exiting a lot of its hardware projects lately. Uh, you know, the, all of the toys that it sort of had around the side, it's starting to show signs that Facebook is under pressure from TikTok and YouTube. Facebook is not keeping up competitively. People don't really like the platform um, or the people that that drive. And Facebook is increasingly under attack from the governments. So I think Facebook is going to divest itself of more and more hardware and just focus down on its core business unit as its star begins to wane. Um, and Amazon gets a bunch of space people pretty cheaply and pretty quickly to ramp up their, their to accelerate their deployment. I have mixed feeling about billionaires playing in space, uh, although I am happy to see more satellite internet competition on the horizon, uh, in part because it means competition for internet service providers in the US, which have had long had essentially monopolies or duopolies or triopolies. Uh, So great to see some competition coming. And if I was an ISP seeing Amazon getting into my business, I would be worried. Uh, So maybe think about upgrading your services. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, all of the traditional satellite stuff must be are definitely struggling and and 
looking at what they can do to change this and how they're going to launch satellites and fighting for regulation. A lot of them are doing government stuff, like going to the government and saying, but this is mine. You promised me a business, you know, <laughs> spectrum is mine. It's, you know, I was supposed to have this forever and ever, and now you're sharing it with other people. It's quite fun. You, you got to work the refs, I guess. That's part yeah, of the, part capitalism, of the but with a government, you know, nothing yeah. like a U.S. capitalist organization suddenly turning to the government for support. That's right. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap with a shaggy dog story. Greg, you found this from Japan. Uh, Government efforts to digitize the bureaucracy are running into resistance on two fronts. Uh, First, uh, a rule that would have forbid the use of fax machines and move all uh, government communications to email. It's been scrapped uh, because of pushback from government employees who are concerned about privacy and security risk. Uh, The Guardian newspaper reports that confidential documents for court procedures and police records are often sent via fax, and some officials are worried that digitization could risk the exposure of those kind of documents. Yeah, which is interesting, right? Obviously, faxes have faded out in the Western world, but in Japan, the characters, their written language is extremely difficult to do on keyboards, as far as I understand it. And I think there's something like two and a half thousand kanji characters in, and there's multiple dialects of the Japanese. I wish to apologize in advance if I'm stating something (laughs) wrong, but, you know, Typing Japanese on the screen is a substantial challenge for many people, and faxes has been one way. But the interesting part to this was um, that apparently people have been using a thing called a hanko seal, and that is a, a piece of metal usually, and it gets stamped with ink, and then it gets stamped onto the page. And people get hanko seals as part of their jobs. And so if you get appointed, you know, chief uh, chief Uber dishwasher officer, you get a hanko seal and you sign the document and then you apply your seal. Right. And of course, the traditional part of Japan, you know, these are a source of pride. Some families have hanko seals. Uh, apparently, a lot of organizations, banks and uh, mortgage documents require the use of hanko seals at right. this time. Yep. And lots of really interesting stuff. So, if you're interested in just finding out a little cultural reason as to why fax machines should exist, and there's been substantial pushback, apparently there are legal reasons as to why hankos are still, <laughs> these stamps are still used. They actually officially endorse documents, um, but also that people don't want to give them up. They think they're, they're something they want to keep. Yeah, that's so, the second part of the resistance to this digitization. Uh, they, they, the Japanese government wanted to start reducing the use of these uh, Hanko seals because it requires in people to be together face to face, which is a risk during COVID. Uh, and they're also sort of hard to digitize. Uh, so <laughs> it's tradition and old ways of doing things running into the modern world. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Wikipedia talks about it. It says seals are still used for official purposes in a number of contexts, right. collecting parcels or registered posts. The name sealer serves as an identification akin to a signature in banks. Traditionally, the method of identification was also a seal. Seals remain the customary form of identification on checks in mainland China and Taiwan, and so on and so on. So there's a real thing, and it's only... And the article, uh, Wikipedia says, during 2020, the Japanese government has been attempting to discourage the use of seals. And it's like, okay, maybe should have started 10 years ago, but, you know, it's going to take some time to break that down. And I suspect that while that exists, fax machines will have a purpose in Japan, perhaps. Yeah, my assumption is that these seals are essentially uh, another factor of authentication. It's the thing that you have that's supposed to be yours personally that identifies you. Uh, So you can see why they'd be useful in, you know, uh, legal transactions and so on. Mm. anyway links in the show notes if you want to find out more about it i think it's it is an interesting story that does wrap up uh, the news portion of the show stay tuned for our tech bites conversation with apneta on supporting a hybrid workforce that's coming right up 
You're listening to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. There's an ongoing debate about when and whether to bring employees back to the office and how to enable hybrid work. But people are getting back to the office for sure, which means that IT needs to make sure the on-prem network is ready. We're talking with sponsor AppNeta today on what IT should be doing to support on-prem and remote workers. Our AppNeta guests are Sean Armstrong. He is VP of Products and Alec Pinkham, Director of Product Marketing. Folks, welcome back to the podcast. And let's start with a little context. What are you folks hearing at AppNeta from customers about their plans to allow remote work versus getting everyone back into the office. So this is a very common topic of conversation with our buyers. Um, they're trying to support a hybrid environment where people are going between the office and um, working from home, typically a hoteling situation or, or working from home two or three days a week and the rest of the time in the office. It is a real challenge to make sure apps are accessible and performant where the employees are changing location. And it's definitely changing how they plan out future IT purchases. Um, typically it was office-centric technologies. Uh, you know where everyone is going to be. You can uh, plan for that accordingly, but now with people transitioning back and forth, it is a much bigger challenge to solve and make sure apps are accessible and performant for their users. Yeah, and I think there's also a, an acknowledgement that policies need to shift towards uh, remote work towards work from home. We've heard everything from nobody can be on Wi-Fi, every connection has to be wired to enterprises paying for internet upgrades. And I think we're going to see more of that as the hybrid work conversation evolves. One uh, really interesting aspect of this is it's not just a performance question. A lot of our customers have uh, really to deal with this as an HR problem. There's so much availability of remote work now that if they don't offer it, their best people may leave. So they need to find a way to support it going forward. So it needs to be part of every project that they're planning out. Okay, so that's interesting. Now, the ability to support remote work becomes, uh, if not a competitive differentiator, a competitive necessity almost. Exactly. You know, we've definitely changed our strategy. We're hiring anywhere. Um, engineers are really the best people for the job. They don't have to be located where offices are. It's dramatically opened up options for us. And it's very common among our users. They realize that my people don't need to be in the office. It's a benefit if they can be, but I'm going to hire the best person for the job wherever they happen to be. And I need to support them. So are you getting a sense then of budget priorities changing where most of the budget may have been dedicated to on-prem infrastructure and now maybe more of that's being carved out to support remote work, whether it's, uh, you know, buying new equipment for users, uh, you know, even paying for their network connections? I think it varies from company to company, but there's definitely cost savings and not having to run the same office infrastructure that you were before. Smart companies are transitioning it to support work from home users, make sure that they have the right tools to do their job well. And it definitely changes uh, IT budgeting going forward, where traditional you know transition to office-centric tools, uh, SD-WAN, may be on the back burner because they need to transition apps that were in the data center up to the cloud to make them more accessible to remote users. Um, even the most forward thinking customers we're working with wish they had made those transitions prior to COVID, but you know, hindsight is always 2020 there. Well, Sean, it sounds like we're talking transition, but there's a few transitions here. There was the transition to remote work with so many people going that way, but then the transition back to the office, or, or, or I guess that's the question. Are we seeing people saying, yeah, we're all going back in the office or are we forever in this world where now we must support both sides of the equation, office and remote? So I don't uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we've had a single customer say that they're forcing everyone back into the office. There's uh, employee benefit to not having to commute every day. There's cost efficiencies for the companies. I've I've seen it in the Wall Street Journal of some you know Wall Street 
finance companies forcing everyone back in, but with the tech companies we traditionally work with, it, it's really a benefit for them and a benefit for their employees to support hybrid work from anywhere setups. Yeah, I think it's certainly going to depend on the specific job function that they're running. We've had everyone from contact centers, which you would think, okay, they have very heavy applications, voice video type chats. They're working from home just fine. And actually most of those companies are moving fully remote for that function. But as you said, traders, things like that, even them, they've figured out a way to work during the pandemic. So a lot of them aren't going to return if they can, if they can handle that. So if we're in this hybrid work environment for, um, that's the new normal. And I, I agree with what you're both saying. I think that is the case. How do we deal with that from a monitoring experience? We're talking about end user experience. How do I put, uh, can I have a, a set of tools, not 15 different tools that allow me to monitor what my remote worker is dealing with and what my human that's in the office might be dealing with? There's definitely, I'd say there's two challenges there. First off, there's IT efficiency and that when you have everyone in the office, if there's a problem, you solve it, everyone benefits. Now, when everyone is working from home, there's a one-to-one -one ratio of me closing that ticket helps that one user who is working remotely. I need to make all of my IT processes support these work from anywhere deployment options and so that I can maintain efficiency, support users wherever they happen to be, um, but also have it be smart enough to know this user may be in the office on Monday and working from home Tuesday. I need to know where they are. I need to be able to, to support them. And because that user's moving, I need to have the instrumentation uh, follow that user. So ideally on their workstation that they're going to be taking back and forth, that is the best scenario. And then uh, the really interesting part of this is our most forward thinking customers are realizing that when I have them back in the office, it's there is actually a benefit to having uh, workstation level instrumentation from within the office as well. So instead of having one point of perspective, measuring the performance from that office um, and having to rely on it hundred percent, I can have 50 people with workstation level monitoring. I really get a wisdom of the crowd effect to identify and isolate problems as quickly as possible. If I'm 90% accurate with my diagnostics, uh, with a single point of point of view, okay, that's 90% accuracy. But if I have 50 points of view at 90% accuracy, I'm going to have that much better visibility to identify and resolve that problem as quickly as possible. You raised an interesting point, which I hadn't considered in this whole uh, sort of split hybrid uh, remote and in uh, on-prem offices that part of the instrumentation has to have that context awareness to say, this is a ticket coming in related to a call from somebody's house versus this is a ticket related to a problem on premises. Exactly. Um, knowing where the user is and really maintaining that context of who is this person? How do they fit into my organization? Um, you know, centralizing against whatever the central point of truth within their organization has been one of the initial challenges in supporting work from anywhere. But now as people are transitioning back and forth, the the ability to identify where is this user at any given time are there they are they their own data set because they are in a single location by themselves or are they in the office that given day and they're part of this larger data set to understand performance is some intelligence we've had to, to really incorporate throughout the product as well as uh, some privacy concerns um, knowing where a user is on any given day what wi-fi network they're connected to what processes are running on their host machine has some security and privacy concerns uh, especially with with gdpr and the california privacy act you need to make sure uh, you have the right data to solve the problems but you're not collecting information about their home environment which may not be relevant or really wise to collect in the first place 
And how are you able to surface up that information to an IT person looking to diagnose a problem that that, that context about where the person is and then what issues might be associated with that around particular on privacy? So, you know, there are uh, location services built into modern Windows and um, Mac workstations. If you have the ability to, you know, if this is a centrally IT managed device, you could enable that at the time of installation so that you will get really precise data um, based on obviously the GOIP that uh, where they're resolving to, what SSIDs are around them. There are commercial services that do that resolution and they're, they're built into Windows and Mac. If you can do that, that's the best case scenario. Um, where it comes into some challenge there is, well, what if they have a VPN and they're, they're piping all of their traffic back? Um, you can't just rely on GOIP resolution because of that. Everyone's going to look like they're coming through, you know, the VPN concentrator uh, location. So if you can't get it from the OS, that is best. What we have found is, well, well let's keep track of their WAN addressing. Let's look it up whenever it changes. Uh, and if we can only get down to the city level, that's probably good enough for, for most locations, but enable them to define, okay, these are my offices. These are the, the subnets that really are associated with the specific office. When they're in that location, I know that I'm going to explicitly define it. When they're remote, you know, uh, a few kilometers from where they happen to be is, is probably good enough for, for most cases. Resolve that along with their ISP and I can have enough data to solve most problems. Yeah, and I think to add on to that a little bit, one of the things that we've found, especially over the past year, is that identifying the scope of the problem and isolating where in the network delivery path a problem exists has been one of the hardest parts, probably mostly because we don't have visibility into the end user environment at home that we are used to in the office. And I think being able to tag that location dynamically as they move around is giving IT a little bit of a sigh of relief in the sense that they can now worry about looking at the path by the user or the application or maybe the region, and then be able to troubleshoot and triage the steps of kind of where that traffic went. Well, do, do I, am, am I always relying on an agent on that end user workstation or in the re remote work era, are we assuming that there's a lot of personal devices involved that don't have an agent? And so we're still able, like a lot of the things you decided about IP addresses and GOIP databases, I don't need an agent for that, but still a lot of things like the home user environment, I do have to have an agent, right? So Obviously, that is the best case scenario. If you can have an agent there to get bi-directional performance data, that's the best case scenario. With residential internet, you, you may very well very well get asymmetric performance. But if that's not possible, and, and Alec mentioned this, that we're supporting a lot of companies running virtual call centers where they have you know some, some basic um, PC requirements, we can still do uh, centralized from you know, really the core out to where the remote users are monitoring to ensure that when this user session starts, they log in, they're on the clock. We can detect that um, by integrating with whatever central logging tool or whatever central application is that they're using for their virtual call center. Instrument from the core out to the end user, that is you know, a viable solution that will answer most WAN-centric performance problems. Where this really gets interesting, in some of these more regulated industries that we're working with, uh, the way that they're handling this is to use cloud-centric BDI solutions. Things like uh, medical research with highly specialized software, rather than expecting every user to have that on their, their home laptop, they run a VDI session out of something like AWS Workspaces. And we've actually partnered with AWS to ensure that AppData technology can be embedded directly within the workstation uh, that is being virtualized and measure from the VDI session to wherever that user happens to be. 
and we're supporting, you know, global pharmaceutical manufacturers that have, you know, 20,000 agents that, you know, don't have company issued devices and they may be changing the devices and locations on a day to day basis. We can instrument from that VDI session out to wherever the user happens to be at when the session begins and then tear it down when they're done so they don't get irrelevant data. Um, you know, there are viable solutions for these BYOD, BYOPC uh, scenarios. It's definitely more challenging, but, you know, we've had to find a solution because this is the world we live in today. Yeah, oh, that's interesting that you that went in a direction I wasn't expecting. I was expecting to say, and so we can instrument from the VDI back to the data center. And I'm going, uh, but you can go from the VDI to where the end user is picking it up. That's really fascinating. Yeah, we definitely do it from the VDI out to wherever the apps are actually running, um, especially SaaS and cloud services. But it's typically the connection from the, the cloud-centered VDI to wherever the remote end user happens to be that is the source of most problems. So we needed to make sure we had that uh, automatically instrumented uh, as the session begins. So given that the focus for the last year and a half essentially has been on supporting remote work, is it possible the on-prem environment uh, may have fallen behind a bit or do you hear from customers that they're essentially assuming they're just going to sort of walk in and it'll just pick up where they left off and things will be good enough? Uh, I definitely think there's a change. Um, a lot of our customers are planning for lower density of users within the office. Uh, they've taken the opportunity here to, to do some of the IT projects that may have been you know, on the back burner because they didn't want to interrupt people in the office. Those are the, the best case scenarios. But really, how do I monitor when I don't know where any given user is going to be on a given day is the biggest challenge. Um, and that IT budget now needs to be split between centralized infrastructure in the office and the right tools and the, and the right um, implementations of my apps to support these work from anywhere users. So it, it varies company to company, but I do think any project going forward is going to have to account for um, understanding and supporting employees that may be, you know, changing locations day to day. That has a major shift in IT budgets and IT uh, planning for projects. Well, Sean and Alex, this has been a really interesting discussion. You've given me a lot to think about, and I hope other people a lot to think about too. Uh, if folks are interested in learning more about AppNeta, where would you send them? I would send them directly to appneta.com slash packet pushers. All right. Nice and easy. AppNeta.com slash packet pushers. Thanks, Sean and Alec, for joining us. Thanks to AppNeta for being a sponsor. And thank you for being a listener. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that no matter where you are, too much networking would never be enough.